Thanks everybody and welcome to the Interoperability Roundtable. This is an open forum fostering conversations around interoperability. My name is Jake Tunney, Product Manager at Leap Orbit, and I'll be your MC today. And I'm happy to announce that you can now find us on Spotify. Um, and today we're joined by host David Finney and we're usually joined by Mernal Basker. And unfortunately, Mernal could not make it today. He's feeling a little under the weather. Um, so I send best, best wishes to Mernal and hope he feels better soon. We're all taking our masks off and, uh, and reintroducing ourselves to the, to the bugs of the world, I think. I guess so. Um, so yeah, we'll hope that he feels better soon. And, uh, Leap Orbit is the trusted innovation partner to many of the biggest market-leading health data networks, including CRISP, Manifest Medics, and Sync Health, as well as the policymakers who oversee them. And we are currently working on improving the accuracy and accessibility of provider data with our product, Convergent, Provider Directory API as a Service. Conversion also assists plans to comply with the CMS interoperability rule. Um, and today we are joined by Julie Barnes, founder and principal at Maverick Health Policy. Julie is a healthcare policy expert with years of experience helping the private sector navigate federal government activities that impact the healthcare system. Ms. Barnes is a strategic advisor to organizations that need guidance about federal health policies and how to develop relationships with policymakers and influential advocacy organizations. Formerly a VP of Federal Strategy at Cambia Health Solutions, Ms. Barnes informs business strategy and investments in a myriad of healthcare areas, including health IT, data privacy and interoperability, value-based care, transparency, health insurance and new payment models, and federal health programs. And before we jump into our chat, just a reminder that we always encourage audience participation. So please comment your questions for us in the chat. Um, and Julie, before we get into today, I, we spoke earlier about this, but I thought that since we're sort of taking a focus on the No Surprises Act, I thought it might be good for you to sort of give a high level introduction of, of what even is the No Surprises Act. Absolutely. Well, and happy Friday to you, Jake, and, and everybody um, joining us. I hope you all have, have plans um, to get out in the world because that's what we're doing. I'm about to go on vacation, so I'm, I'm in a pretty good mood today. <laughs> so, um, and, and thanks for the introduction. You know, I, I always hope that when somebody introduces me, they, they make some stuff up because it just doesn't sound that interesting. Um, but, it, you know, the, the short version of, of where I came from was, was Capitol Hill um, during the first round of, of health reform in the 90s and then 10 years as a lawyer and then I fell into full-time policy work. And now I'm just doing health information technology because there's just too much work to be done. So, um, and, and this, is, this is an example, right? The, the No Surprises Act turns out to not just be work for lawyers and more arbitration in the healthcare space. It, it also is a healthy amount of price transparency, um, which is really about data exchange. So here we are, um, I'm, I'm just gonna give a brief snapshot of what happened back in December when everyone was distracted by not only the pandemic, but the fallout from a general election. 
And uh, lo and behold, in that lame duck in December 2020, Congress enacted and the president signed the No Surprises Act, which provides new federal consumer protections against surprise medical bills that are such a long-term pain point for everybody. So, so really the gist of that bill is to, to provide um, protections and hold consumers harmless from the cost of out-of-network medical bills that they didn't anticipate happening. So that, that starts really in January of 2022. That's when it's gonna be illegal for providers to bill patients for anything more than the normal and network cost-sharing stuff under a patient's uh, insurance. Uh, and almost all scenarios where surprise out-of-network bills happen. So it, it's a big, it's a big deal. Um, and, and that's the sort of high level um, and, and sort of most important uh, part of the No Surprises Act. Um, but we are going to start to see rulemaking, uh, supposedly statutorily uh, in July, that will, will put some um, layers on not only the arbitration process that is anticipated by that surprise billing rule or surprise billing law, but also these price transparency provisions that I suspect, uh, Jake, you wanna ask me about now. That's a good segue. I think so. So we spoke a bit um, planning this about sort of the elements that we wanted to cover today around No Surprises Act. Um, and I think the first place that I'd like you to cover is around advanced EOBs. Julie, so maybe you could take a stab at how that uh, interacts with the No Surprises Act. Yeah, so this is causing a lot of consternation, as you might imagine, um, among health plans who are, are really my primary um, professional experience base. Uh, that, that client list of, of health plans is near and dear to my heart, um, just from life, but also now. Um, and also the, all the health IT vendors that love them. So the, the, that's sort of my space. And the advanced explanation of benefits um, is, is, really, um, is really an issue just in conceptually. Because if you think about what, what that means, we all get these explanation of benefits that are these terrible pieces of paper with writing on them that make almost no sense uh, to any regular human about uh, medical services that you just received and how much you owe and how much you paid already and how much is going to happen. And, and, and it's just very sort of terrible, um, terrible way of communicating uh, what's going on and, and navigating the healthcare situation that you're in. But beginning in 2022, the No Surprises Act says that consumers can request advance information about how services will be covered before they are provided, which sounds amazing, right? For, so for scheduled services, consumers can submit a request and generally speaking within three business days, according to the No Surprises Act, the health plan is supposed to give you written information, including uh, whether the provider is in network, and a good faith estimate of what the plan will pay and what your cost liability is, as the patient will be. Um, <laughs> and herein lies, herein lies the rub. I'm laughing, it's not funny. I mean, thinking about what a good faith estimate is, is just a little mind boggling. Um, 
mostly because, you know, it, it, there isn't, I mean, when you have some treatments, there's an it, right? There, there's a pill that you pay for, or there's a, um, you know, a surgery, you know, you're going to get. And, and so there's, there's usually a couple of like objective truths about a treatment plan, right? That you can, you can nail to a wall and say, this is definitely how much this costs based on your, you know, deductible and co-pays and co-insurance and rules of your benefit package or whatever, it's X. And then there's everything else. Like, oh, we didn't know you had that, you know, other um, underlying health condition, which completely changes the game. Or you get into, call it a surgery, and it's so much worse than they thought. Or you have an attendant trouble, and, and so they have to bring in some specialist to hurry up and do that. You know, there, there's so many things that there is no way for any, any good faith operating health plan can possibly anticipate about what's going to happen. So, so there's just there's just that you're basically setting up people for an expectation that cannot be met. Um, crystal balls, health plans do not have. So, at some level, I'm completely on board with the skepticism of how this is going to work. At another level, um, we all kind of need this, right? Like we've all been kind of. It, it's a, it, I mean, it's not like we all have some sort of great comfort with when we go to buy cars. Um, that the ticket item, you know, the tickets, the sticker on the car is actually what you're paying. Like that's, that's not a thing. Um, but it's a little bit more commonsensical when you walk through all the attendant fees and stuff, right? Medical information is just hairy, um, <clears throat> especially because so, so much of the rub of this is in and out of network stuff, right? So you don't just have a doctor, you know, usually, uh, to, to deal with. There's always attendant other people in, in, the, in the services space, uh, whether that's other doctors or not doctor professionals or, you know, whoever and whatever products, you know, drugs. So, so there's just, there's, it's so uncomfortable if you're a health plan, especially if you're a health plan lawyer as a former health plan lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God, that the legal um, sort of disclaimer that needs to be written on these things is long. I mean, I would write a long one and then I'd write another one. I'd start out with a legal disclaimer and then I'd end it with a legal disclaimer because it's, it is over the top sort of scary um, to think about how you are trying hard to provide the right information to people and you could completely screw that up. Um, so, you know, the advanced EOB thing, good idea. Wow, does that have terrible consequences, you know? And, and again, consequences. No yeah, I was going to say, I mean, terrible consequences if, you will, if your job is to run a health plan. Um, but, it, but it does sort of change the conversation, which I guess is the intent, right? From if, if there's a, a dispute or, or a conversation between a plan and a beneficiary, the, the argument is no longer, how could you have billed me so much? I had no idea um, retrospectively um, to, well, you said it was this much and it turned out to be this much, what, what changed? Um, I mean, it's a small, it's a, it, it's a small, it may seem like a small sort of shift in, in the dynamic of the relationship between a consumer and their, and their health insurer, but it, but it feels like a pretty big deal. Oh, I, I think, Look, it's it's a business game changer. And it's a business game changer, not just for health plans and their enrollees and, and therefore employers that have contracted for those insurance benefits, right? Sure. 
it is, it is absolutely a game changer for the plan and provider um, back and forth, right? Yep. I mean, in some ways, you can imagine how the blame would, would actually shift <clears throat> from, from health plans not being right about something to a provider who didn't, you know, who either left the network or didn't say they were out of network on time for the notice to go out or, you know, it actually plans to, um, you know, to, to, to charge a lot more than is the typical range, you know, of, of, of that service charge. So, you know, if I'm a person, which I am on some days, and I go to get, you know, medical services, and I ask my plan, and they're like, you know, we're going to, we're, we're going to pay for this guy who's solely in network, but the anesthesiologist, which is typical, right, is out of network. And we really don't know how much they're going to charge. You might want to talk to them, mm-hmm. you know, like we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to aim and fire for you on, on, on paying this, but <clears throat> whether or not they plan, you know, to, to charge more than that and how they plan to, you know, there, there is a weird little part of the bill that basically says um, out of network providers can negotiate with people for charging up, you know, um, and, and essentially balance billing, even though it's not a balance bill, um, a balance billing bill. So <laughs> it's, it, it, to me, it's like, it's an interest. It's the whole thing is to pull back the curtain, right? There's a reason why they call these price transparency moments, right? It is really about exposing how much things cost earlier so that people can yeah. deal, right? Yeah. That's fantastic. It's just it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see who sort of gets left holding the the, the bag on on who's to blame for how much things cost, because um, because notoriously that has been health plans for sure, and I kind of wonder if that isn't going to shift. When people realize it's it's you know the surgeon or whoever that's just you know charging an astronomical amount for whatever. Well, so there's another piece of that, which is um, you know it's it's one thing to give the consumer more insight into what things cost. Um, it, it's another question about what will the impact of this of this law have on premiums and on the cost of services, right? I mean, that's, in my mind, you know, maybe you probably have a much better hunch on this than me, but if you look at the the administrative burden that that, um, is gonna be borne by the plans and to some extent providers to to comply with um, the statute. And then you also look at the arbitration structure um, where um, it's not clear, you know, what view arbitrators will take of the facts of, you know, a particular case and, and what's an appropriate charge. I mean, do you, do you think there's a chance that we could end up in a place, um, you know, beyond 2022 where, where suddenly things are more expensive? Oh, oh, yeah. So there's, look, there's a couple of different fallouts here and probably some that I just can't even reasonably anticipate. But I mean, if you're a health plan and you're looking at this and you're thinking, okay, the main way that that people get upset with a health plan is by not knowing that somebody was out of network and, and it just opens it up to costs that you can't anticipate, right? So you are shoring up who's in and who's out and why, right? And then you're also trying to figure out quickly um, how much you're paying the out-of-network guys typically, Right, which is which is 
you know, part of other, other bills and other regs anyway, but this is something for this. You want to get straight quick. I, I think it's going to streamline the heck out of negotiations and really, and this is part of the point, this is part of the spirit of the policy um, is, is commoditizing, you know, the range of prices for, for these kinds of services. N just no question about it. That the object of the game will be to compete not on price because a price should be whatever, you know, it's typically called the usual and customary, but that's going to be like, what do you expect? Like, what do you expect it to be? What is it reasonable to expect something's going to be? <clears throat> and then everybody's going to sort of say, oh, I totally got my, you know, joint replacement for blah, 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 you know? And, and that narrative is not just going to be a water cooler narrative or over your backyard, you know, fence narrative. It's going to be in the newspapers. Like, it's going to be out there. It's going to be in price comparison tools. Like, it, it's going to be an it pretty quickly. Right. We, we know from, you know, lots of research that the that there's a there's a huge uh, dispersion of costs for comparable services across providers. Right. And, and those costs are not co correlated with with quality and outcomes. So, I mean, I think one of the objectives of this whole exercise is to try to squeeze that band down. Right? That's exactly right. That's exactly find right. a market price for a market service. Well, exactly. And, and again, <clears throat> it's never that simple, right? It's never that simple with these things. Cause, cause that's why, that's why medicine is just different. It doesn't work like the general economy because it's not an it, there is no it in, in medical services land. You know, it's not, you don't buy a product. It's, it's science that changes based on who you are and what you have wrong with you. And all that um and, and and the professional services that are provided you know varies for good and bad reasons right so it's just it's just it's just a complicated uh area to to regulate in this way and yet <clears throat> this is really all about incentivizing you know at least getting it down to a normal you know range of prices for the stuff that you can that's really what the no surprises bill is 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 trying to do in addition to not bankrupting people for having some terrible medical condition accidentally because they didn't know, right? They didn't know what they were getting into, so they couldn't, you know, influence the decision making. So we're going to have educated consumers, but we're also going to have a streamlined industry, right? That is is so um, interested in undercomplicating what is overly complicated now. So we kind of touched on the need for this comparison tool and that, and that is a requirement within the act so julie can you speak to that requirement a bit more and how you're you're conceptualizing of how those will be put into practice how it will be put into practice so you mean the advanced eovs or, or the price comparison oh, yeah, tools. Right. So, so yeah. So, the, so, you know, I'm not sure we actually said out loud, there's three really price transparency provisions. One is advanced EOBs, one is price comparison tool, and then one is provider directory. So we're on number two now with the, the price comparison tool. And, and really the law says, and there's no rules yet. So, so that's the other thing we probably should have said in the beginning. There are no rules to go find. There's a bill. Um, but like normal statutes, it doesn't really get down in the weeds. We have to wait for, for rules, um, which we're expecting to come out in July. We're expecting them to come out from CMS's CSIO, the, the one that runs the insurance 
part of the world for, um, for CMS. So one of those things is this price comparison tool where plans are going to have to create a navigation ability <clears throat> for people either, well, actually it's both, it's online and over the phone so that people can have a choice of how they find out that compares the cost sharing for a specific item or service by any participating provider. So you can um, look online for that, but, but there's all, sort of, all sorts of um, <laughs> complicating factors with this. So first of all, price comparison tools exist, but they don't exist, um, I think, in a, in a way that sort of a blanket truth about all the different places and uh, prices that are available for, for certain services. So we, we're limited in our price comparison tools now based on a per plan sort of basis. And yet um, we have, uh, you know, sort of these interoperability rules that are about to extend all of that, right? So we're about to have a whole different um, set of data to rely on that will expand these tools and make them more useful. But we've also got hospital price estimator tools coming um, from the hospital price transparency rule, completely separate rule. So, so there's the No Surprises Act price comparison tool rule for plans, but there's already in place a requirement for hospitals to create a price estimator tool, which is, I just have to call out as sort of a, an initial sort of, okay, so we've got to coordinate that. Because as you might imagine, health plans have to say the same thing that the hospital said about what something costs. And those two <laughs> um, planets don't necessarily talk to each other all the time about everything. So that's, that's going to have to change. It's going to be interesting. I actually see this becoming another area where CMS might be really smart to nudge the, <clears throat> the market towards sort of the API economy and sort of an ecosystem here. Um, I mean, these are the types of complex data problems that you know, technology companies might, might actually be able to, to step into and make sense of. Like, how do you, how do you, um, pull data from a hospital and pull data from a carrier um, and, and marry those things into a reasonable estimate of, of what something might cost for someone, you know, based on all the, all the inputs. Uh, look, I, I, so you just hit on something that's, that I'm, I'm more and more passionate about all the time, which is we need our technology friends to come tell traditional healthcare players how to do this. Cause as a traditional healthcare related, you know, industry person, <laughs> we don't know, right? Um, you know, the folks that have been in this for a while that are consumer facing and totally get how to like swirl all an immense amount of data into a navigatable actional situation. Like, mm. you know, Amazon is always thrown out as an idea, but really the ones that are in this space um, and focused on healthcare as an IT, you know, vendor helper are the ones that are going to get this right. It is just, it is, it is just uh, something that's um, a huge growth opportunity for the right folks that know how to create um, not only the the sort of data mining that's necessary here, but the algorithms to to learn what people need next. 
um, which again is what Amazon's really so good at, um, is they figure out who you are and then they help you, you know, with right. what you don't even know you needed help with. Um, that's, that's, that's where this is going, but wow, we are so, I think so far, far out from that right now. Um, but that's where this should end up. So everyone is in that uncomfortable cultural shock situation with, you know, what, what they have to do to even clean the data, to get it to where it's supposed to go, to get it to be in a tool that may or may not be good, you know, is kind of where we're at now. Um, but wow, that's, that is clearly where this is headed, right? Well, I agree. And I think, you know, one of the discussions that, that we have when we talk with, with plans and even, you know, medic state Medicaid agencies is, um, you should try to stop looking at these rules through the lens of regulatory compliance. And I know, you know, Julie, as, a, as an attorney, you'll probably say, oh, well, that'll, that'll never happen. But um, the, the, the internet is sort of littered with these web-based tools that, you know, regulated industries, let's say health plans in this case, have sort of thrown up to check boxes. Um, and um, I, I think that the, you know, the, the force behind a lot of this rulemaking from an IT perspective is um, data liquidity, right? Like the, the end goal is not to put up a price transparency widget that um, sits on your webpage and checks the box and doesn't you know, get touched for eight more years until the next rulemaking comes along. Um, it, it's, can you make your data liquid and available to the marketplace so that the marketplace can figure out how to, how to make sense of it. Um, well, and, and yeah, now you're in, <clears throat> you know, thorough interoperability speak, right? Like, so that's, that's really about the interoperability rules and, and figuring out how to create um, standardized data so that whatever you happen, whatever you're sitting on can then be translated into uh, a bigger, pot um for people to pull from which is so maybe just, that's that's a good, <laughs> the dumbest way i've ever said that before but but yeah that <laughs> translated that's yeah that's, that's what happens <laughs> maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about the the provider directory pieces of of the law i mean i, I will say um i i remember you know three years ago sitting in, in sitting with the senate help committee staff talking about support act and the opioid epidemic and for them you know no surprises was sort of at the top of senator alexander's mind before he retires and yeah. it was the thing that they they wanted to get through that was at that time sort of standing in the way of the stuff we wanted to talk about which was which was the opioid epidemic and it and it didn't really dawn on me hearing you know folks on the hill talk about this bill that this really was a health it bill Oh yeah. Um, and as I've started to, to, to wrap my head around that, I, I see how it interlocks with the interoperability rule and, and TEFCA and, and other things. Um, and, and in some ways I think raises the bar significantly because it, it imposes requirements on, on really the whole market um, and not, not just the CMS regulated plans. Well, that's, uh, yeah, amen. <clears throat> Look, I, I think everything comes back to, to, you know, health IT now. I mean, I, I, you know, everybody starts talking about one thing. I'm like, oh, that's so health IT. Um, because 
it really, it's about the data. It's about the information, right? It's about the information flow and who gets it. So almost no matter what you're talking about in the healthcare space, to me, it, it, it always, it always comes back to this. It's like, who's got the information? How are you getting it there? You know, how are you going to get to where it needs to go? Um, so, so yeah, um, no surprises, Bill definitely has a healthy amount of um, new rules about how basically you can't bill patients um, for things they didn't know they were going to get billed for and, and really uh, creating a new arbitration process. So, so that part is, you know, successfully not about data. The rest of it's all about data and, and really informs that first part because you, you need the information about who's in and who's out, who's charging what, who, you know, what costs what, and, and who's, who's paying for which piece of it in order to have the arbitration conversations, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it's all, it's all sitting on, on the back of, um, of, of the information and, and who has it. So back to your, you know, thought about provider directories. This is, this is another, you know, huge and long-term pain point um, for everybody in the business. Health plans have always struggled um, to maintain and, and timely update uh, accurate provider network directories, right? And so this bill, um, not for the first time, but really kind of solidifies the establishment of a verification process to update the provider directory at least every 90 days. So health plans are on the hook for responding to requests from people within one business day um, about whether a provider facility is in network. And then that information becomes binding. So you heard what I said about the 90 day, you know, verification part, but there's a one day turnaround. So in my mind, it's a one day rule, you know, like every, everyone that I talk to about this, even though it's an uncomfortable thing to say out loud <laughs> to people trying to implement so many things at once. But as far as I'm concerned, health plans need to figure out by hook or by crook, how to get information updated every single day. And to me, even these rules wouldn't, wouldn't matter uh, for that being true. I, I was already saying that about the interoperability rule implementation, just because how do you answer people's questions properly about information, which includes cost sharing information in the interoperability rule. That's totally in the interoperability. It's like this, I feel like that's not celebrated <laughs> enough. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a serious hot potato. Um, that in addition to patients getting all of their information out of their medical record, according to what the health plans know, um, that they also, plans are also on the hook for telling people how much their cost sharing is in the interoperability rule, having nothing to do with transparency and coverage rule, having nothing to do with the no surprises rule. That's already in there. So how do you do that? If you're a health plan and you're like, huh, I have to answer this request. How do you do that if you don't have an updated provider directory? It's a non-starter. These turnaround times are, are, are ridiculously quick, um, you know, and, and sort of understandably quick if you're writing these rules and you're thinking, what's the problem? It's electronic, just push the button, you know, kind of thing. Well, and understandably but quick, too. behind it, Yeah, know? I mean, I think understandably quick, too, if, you, if you're writing this rule from the perspective of the patient, right? I mean, the patient has to make um, intelligent decisions about their care based on actionable information. So, um, you, you know, you kind of end up at the turnaround times, no matter what. Yeah, no, no, no question. Look, I just, 
I, I mean, in my mind, you know, to comply, there are so, there are a myriad of, of deadlines in these rules sure. that are not necessarily coordinated and are at very least confusing. If, if, if they can be sort of dealt with separately, okay. I just think, I just think if I were inside the health plan and I was trying to figure this out, I would just make a blanket truth. We are, we are making it a term of our contract with our providers to up, you know, to let us know um, every single day. If something changes every single day, you got a phone number, address, guy leaving your network or office or whatever, you tell us. There, there just has to be an automatic truth about that. And then there has to be, call it a new department if it doesn't already exist, a set of humans that are in charge of updating it every day. That's their job. I, I just, I mean, you know, again, if I'm the lawyer, uh, that's what I'm saying. To, to my to my folks, my operational folks that that need to be married with compliance. This is how we do this now. Well, I agree, and I mean, you know, maybe I'm I'm giving away um, cool new business ideas, but we we've been sort of spitballing around what like what does that look like for let's say a health system um, on the technology side, right? I mean, are there there are APIs that you could expose to yeah. the market? Um, that basically say, hey, we, we have a contract with you. You, you want to know what's changed since the last time you checked with our, you know, with our employee census, our provider census, um, we'll, we'll send it right back to you. Um, I mean, I think FIRE creates the structure to do that. And right. um, it, it's not a particularly difficult technology challenge. It's just, this is not something that, that providers have ever done before. Well, look, when you have an incentive like there is in the No Surprises Act um, be, uh, for, for plans to update this, because consumers who rely on incorrect information, you know, are, are entitled to have in-network cost sharing. Yeah. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. Like, you know what I mean? That should come with a, a trumpet um, call. Like, it, it absolutely means plans are going to do whatever they need to do to get that information updated. Um, and, and you're going to have, you know, it's going to be, again, a cultural shock and a struggle to create those relationships that are, are friendlier um, because I think the unfriendly ones are going to go south quick. I mean, as you might imagine, if a health plan can't rely on your information and they continually have to like, make up where you leave off, are right. you going to be part of that provider network for much longer? Like, I just don't see, you know, how that goes well, right, under this scenario. So, um I think most of your career with plans has been sort of the, the larger side of the of the market. Um, you know, what, <laughs> I would love if that were that were the the case because um, that's where the money is. But that's not true at all. Okay. Um, I, I definitely was a health plan lawyer for the the big boys because um, it was a national litigation firm, and we served nationals mostly. But uh, no, the policy dynamic like right now, a, a client of mine is uh, Alliance for Community Health Plans. So, so that includes Kaiser Perm, uh, which is obviously national, and some of the some of the bigger um, heads of state, like um, you know Geisinger, UPMC, but the mostly community nonprofit health plans. So little places in Wisconsin, kind of thing, you know. So let's let's take them, like the the ACAP plans, the smaller plans. I mean, we we, we have um, we've spent a lot of time talking with small plans and specialty plans about um, the interoperability rule. And, you know, that it's we, when we think of the health insurance industry, we tend to think of these these monolithic, enormous, you know, Fortune 50 companies. United Healthcare made news like four times this week. 
You know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and they, they say have, something out loud. Reporters write it down. It, it's kind of crazy. But there, there's a long tail, right? Um, and there's some really small plans out there. Um, and they, they, I think, face a really different set of challenges trying to figure out how to comply with, with these rules. Um, yeah. Yeah, does it, does it drive, it's going to drive more consolidation for sure. Well, like there's it, no question. There's no question. But I, I have to say, I've been very impressed um, with the with the tenacity of of my smaller um, health plans that I I hold near and dear because they're really, you know, I, I I do like regional plans because they are closer not only to their provider network just by their very nature because they're smaller and they're in like literally nearby, but. They also happen to just be more sort of community type, you know, thoughtful people in terms of their investment in, in more of the non-medical social community dynamics that's, you know, that's around naturally medical services. So um, I've been impressed with their um, interest and zeal to, to, to keep up, but, you know, they are not as well capitalized. You know, it's, it's hard. They don't have the internal resources. And, and then they also don't have, you know, the, the money lying around necessarily to, to hire big, hairy external, you know, experts. Right. So well, it's, it's, really, it's yeah. not easy. It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, if you just take the, the patient access requirements of the interoperability rule in the, um, the, the sub-regulatory guidance that, that was put out, it estimated the implementation costs. Yeah. at, you know, what, between 700 and $2 million uh, up front. Um, and, you know, I think it's clear that those costs just, they do not scale um, to the size of a plan. So like, that's a, you know, that's a, that's a thorn on the side of, of a United. But when you look at these, these smaller plans, um, we have a really hard time just as an advisor, um, helping them figure out how they're going to make this affordable. Yeah. No, I, I feel that pain directly um, a lot. And, and I, I do think, you know, it, it, it you know, the rule is scalable uh, in and of itself too. So, you know, in some ways um, having an, having a national set of plans and the enormous number of benefit packages that are in, you know, and, and Aetna or a, or United healthcare or even an Anthem, um, it's, it's mind blowing the amount of data that they are going to have to swirl. And I do think it's going to streamline those um, contracts and, and, and benefit packages that are offered because you can imagine like the spreadsheets on the spreadsheets about, you know, what employer group got this, but didn't get that kind of, kind of world that, you know, creates these different uh, pricing dynamics. Uh, it, it's just, it's just, and, and, and so I think the smaller plans don't have that world of hurt as much. And so it is a little bit more attainable, but again, it kind of comes back to, um, do, do you really have a, a super crack shot, you know, IT department, um, at, in those smaller plans that can really handle, um, the enormity of the, the tasks they're being at, you know, the other thing that I, I've always sort of harped on about these interoperability rules and, and so on and so on is that um, they were invented for providers because of all the money in high tech that was dumped into electronic medical record, you know, and, and that cottage industry that grew up with Epic and Cerner and Thien Health and everybody else. That was a provider thing. 
And it's still a provider thing. 21st Century Cures and ONC and information blocking is all about providers and the health IT vendors that serve them. And medical records are based on professional truths about medical record keeping, which is not health plans. It's not, health plans are supposed to be paying claims. If you're paying a claim, you know, you don't necessarily care if you're just supposed to pay the thing because you agreed to pay the thing because that's what you agreed to in the contract. If the thing is a lab test result and the lab test result is negative and falsely negative as a health plan, do you care? I mean, you have to pay it, right? So claims databases are not super fun to look at because they aren't right necessarily you know, and nobody cared. Like that wasn't a thing before. And now, now we are supposedly supposed to have this super clean, complete, awesome data that, that smacks of a medical health record keeping process, which was never the thing. So it, it is sort of, uh, it's sort of crazy at some level that we're asking those smaller plans to suddenly get religion about how they're keeping their data because we're using it for all sorts of other purposes when that was never, <laughs> that was never a question before. At the same time, I think it's good. I think it's, I secretly think it's a really good thing. We, we all need to be much more conversant um, about, about what we're talking about, you know, from payer to provider and back and forth, no matter how big or small. And if that means consolidation, then so be it. You know, like we just, we just have to get this together. Well, so I think um, that that actually speaks to one of the, there, there have been some questions that have been coming in on the chat and I wanted to <clears throat> take a chance to address some of them. I, I think what you were just saying speaks to one of the questions, which is um, maybe a, a different perspective on, on the, the challenges that plans have that you, that you were just describing. Um, your plans are, are not subject to information blocking rules. Um, and so, you know, are there, are there certain pieces of data that plans guard most closely that see as sort of their secret sauce, their competitive advantage, that they're going to be very resistant to, you know, making available to the market for, for competitive reasons or intellectual property protections or, or whatever. Um, well, or is that just... Is that ship, is that ship sailing? Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. You said it faster. Um, <laughs> look, you know, again, as the, the former healthcare litigator, um, I litigated non-contracting provider arguments about how much they should get paid, right? So, so, you know, this is a very sensitive and legitimately sensitive in my, well, I suppose, <laughs> look, I wear a health plan hat, I'll just be honest. And I just, I just think it's such, it's such a sort of, it shocks me. Um, and I'm once removed uh, thoroughly from this conversation, but there, these are very carefully negotiated contracts in, in a lot of ways for good reason. The, the deal is health plans have the humans to offer uh, to the providers as their patients because they agreed to cover the services, right? Mm -hmm. So that you know, the plans bring the people and the providers agree to be cost-effective about the whole thing and high quality, right? And so that's, that's the you know, given, given pull. And depending on where someone is located, where a provider group is located, they may dominate that space and very legitimately have you know, a higher price point. And, and, and plans who need an adequate you know, provider network um, might have to just deal and then vice versa, 
right? So you got a super competitive area and you've got a super competitive health plan um, that can negotiate, you know, what is uh, uh, an overly reasonable price point, right? Um, and, and so, you know, that's, I mean, just kind of as an American that believes in capitalism, it's kind of uncomfortable to take that away from the people who are good at it. And another, you know, but, it, but then we've gone to an extreme where you have price ranges that are truly ridiculous, right? Like there's, there's this thing that we all know we need in medical services and we're all getting it for a completely different price point. You know, four times, five times different from one another. Insane. That's insane. So, so we need, we, this is hopefully going to normalize that process. But um, I, I do think the ship has sailed for plans mostly because the hospital price transparency rule exists and the negotiated rates are part of that hospital transparency rule. So regardless of whether health plans feel super strongly about this, it's over. I mean, at some level, the hospitals are supposed to be already publicly displaying those rates. So, so it's yeah, I mean, so you know, changed and morphed over time, but it's 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 out there. It, it's you know, it's, it's no longer a conversation point, really. Right. And to your point about um, you know the assumptions that hospitals use to um, present cost, you know, transparent cost information are different ones than the ones that plans use to do the same thing. Um, you know, plans that feel very proprietary about this stuff um, are going to be left in a position where, you know, all right, if, if you're not willing to share this data, the hospital's representation of, of the situation is the, is the only one that's out there for folks to look at. And if, if you want to tell your side of the story, you're, you're going to have to present your own numbers. Well, and, and the way I think about it is it's just the new business truth. You know, this this happens, right? Policy drives business change, whether, you know, the business industry appreciates it or not, which is why I'm a policy consultant. <laughs> That's like my whole thing. No, really, you have to pay attention to them. So I don't think, look, I think, I think the cat is out of the bag or whatever metaphor analogy you want to use, it, it's over. So, so the question becomes, well, then how do you compete, right? And, and I think the big answer is, you know, you compete a little bit on price. You always try to beat the other guy a little bit on price, but mostly you're offering the highest quality services you, you can find. And so what's fantastic, and I'm being sarcastic, is we do not really have a national standard on what determines what high quality is. Yay. I mean, it's just, it's, it's always so, you know, painful uh, to, to recognize, despite the fact that we've all worked on, you know, accountability, pay for performance, whatever we want to call quality, you know, records, quality uh, <clears throat> methodology. Um, it's just not, it's just not fully baked. It's not over. It's not done. It's not remotely where it should be. <sighs> We're even moving into this scary area about <laughs> I'm going to get hit for this, but, but, you know, the, the patient narrative conversation, you know, this sort of, um, you know, tell, tell Yelp what you think about the restaurant is now becoming the new truth about um, how you rate your doctors. And I'm telling you, I hope my mother is not listening, but you should not ask my mother what she thinks about her doctors. Like, it will not be fair opinion. It's just, you know, uh, it, it, and, there, and, and that's, it, it's just, it, there are parameters that make sense for having, um, you know, patient feedback for sure. I'm not saying that there's not. It's just, we cannot base um, our, our sort of uh, quality truths on, on, on that, you know, uh, it, there has to be 
a better and more all encompassing standard of how we're, we're, we're rating healthcare services. Um, we don't have it. It's just a mess. I don't disagree with you. I, I think, you know, part of why we've ended up in that position is because providers have been so guarded about their quality information, right? Like there's been, there's been a vacuum and it's, it's not easy for someone to understand, like, you know, when, when my mom had a spinal fusion a, a couple of years ago um, and she's looking at all of the, the spine surgeons in, in Baltimore and there's, you know, there's what, like thir 13 hospitals in Baltimore city. So you got plenty to choose from. Um, how do I figure out where the best ones are? Um, and how do I figure out where the really bad ones are that I, that I don't want um, operating on me? Um, so, you know, so wh where you end up in that vacuum, I think is, is the Yelp, the Yelp stuff. Cause it's, it's the only information that's available for consumers. To you know, it's interesting about the No Surprises Act is they <clears throat> they get to negotiate um, fair prices based on how great the provider is. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought it was funny. There's all kinds of criteria that you get to just, you know, sort of make judgment calls about what the proper the rate is. And, and one of them for the health plans is uh, you get to say what you normally pay, you know, for those services in the past four years, like in that region it makes total sense. Um, but what on the provider side, it basically says, you know, well, if you're Johns Hopkins, you get more, you know, and if you're not, you know, you know, it, it didn't, doesn't say that exactly, but it, that's what it says. You know, it basically right. says, if you're, if you're the man, you know, you get, you get, you get the really good rates. Um, I, I just, I just thought it was interesting that they baked that right into the law. Um, and, and mostly because the way these things typically go, um, having again been a former litigator, you you submit what the usual and customary charges are with a range, um, but basically based on whatever you pay that is Medicare fee schedule plus, right? Because um, because that's the that's the sort of blanket truth for everybody. Can't right. do that. The No Surprises Act says you cannot use that as a basis for your. Um, your, your suggestion on what the reimbursement should be, which is a little mind blowing. I mean, lawyers everywhere are going, wait, what, how, how do we do that then? Um, so that'll be an interesting day. Interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, Maryland has gone its own way on all of this. So Baltimore is not the, not the best. That's the other fun thing about the bill is that it doesn't, it does not preempt any state laws right. that, that dictate what's already true about what you pay for, you know, non-contracting. But, you know, I, I have some familiarity with those laws and they're not always straightforward. You know, you still, there's still a lot of wiggle room for what, there might be a formula, but what factors you plug into the formula are not, you know, set in stone. Right. So there's always room, always room for lawyers, work for lawyers. Well, so may, maybe we can um, wrap this up with a, um, paint a picture of, of your vision of the future here. I mean, we're, we're in 2025 and the, the regs have been written and the sort of market dynamics have, have gelled around, you know, the arbitration process and, and some of these new requirements. What, what does that, what does that world look like? It's a beautiful world. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, look, I, I, I think we're, we're really going to be, messy and uncomfortable for a while. Um, I, I, 
we just, there's just so many things that we don't have in place that need to be in place that are going to make things kind of terrible. I think for a while, I'm a little, I'm a little, um, yeah, I, I struggle to be anything other than negative about it just because uh, there are so many rules happening all at once that I think normally the healthcare industry would have been all over it and would have been, you know, struggling through and not necessarily super happy about all of it. But we had a pandemic and, and, and it just shifted right when these rules, I mean, these rules literally were promulgated in March, 2020. I mean, you can't make that up, you know, like that's, that's crazy that at the same time, we literally started dealing with a global pandemic. We had these sea changing, you know, operational truths for healthcare. Um, so, okay. So flash forward, here we are, and all these deadlines are hitting and, and we are necessarily going, whoa, you know, and, and it was hard anyway. Um, because they were so sort of rapidly in succession, you know, promulgated by the last administration. And, and, and they are going to keep going. Like Mickey Trabassi just can't, can't stop talking about how Tefka is coming any minute now. And, and we, we continue to layer on these things without, say, a patient matching standard in place, right? We don't have a national, oh, we definitely are doing this authentication to make sure we're talking to the right human at the right time so we can push the records where they go. And then, you know, price transparency is one thing without the streamlining of who's paying who what. At the same time, we don't have quality standards to apply so that the price points make more sense, right? Like it's just wow you know and, and we don't and, and apparently all at the same time just for fun we have a dynamic where uh congress is 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 scrutinizing big tech in in a general you know antitrust and a competitive sense but also uh we're very suspicious of their uh big tech's ability to keep sensitive data private and secure you probably heard that rumor right so so it's just it's just going to be ugly until it until it settles uh, into a little bit more of a norm. Five years, you know. Oh, P.S. We just you know, Senate just passed the U.S. Um, you know, uh, Innovation and Competition Act. You might have seen that. Yep. Two hundred and fifty small billion dollars into you know emerging technologies that are going to be thoroughly in the healthcare space. Um, so a lot of science, a lot of AI, a lot of, you know, swirling of the soup over there. So, so again, we're just kind of in this explosive time and I welcome futurists to explain to me what's going to happen when, but I am not one of them. I'm just one of these people in the messy details now. And it's, it's, it's going to be a real struggle and everybody's going to sort of kind of do what's expected of them until we get this right. Uh, yeah, uh, one sort of final observation on that. I, I totally agree with all of that. I, I th this feels to me like um, the most dynamic time um, since high tech. And in some ways, I think like the, the it has a different quality to it. In the in the sort of early days after high tech, so much of that was how are we going to stand up these big programs and sort of shovel money into the market. Um, here, uh, you see uh, the market really grappling with how it's going to transform itself to, to comply with, you know, totally new regulatory structure. Um, comply with, but then be competitive about it. <clears throat> sure.
You know, like, I think it's only going to be a hot minute before somebody realizes the provider directories not only need to have whatever the stuff is, you know, demographic boring information in it, but it's going to have attached star ratings, you know, or attached Yelp narratives, right? Like it's, it's going to get interesting fast in, in terms of how do you differentiate yourself? What, how, you, how is your price comparison to a cooler, you know? Yep. So it's, it's, yeah, Whew. it's a lot. Well, Jake, normally you're the one to make the shameless plug for our provider directory solution, but I think Julie just did it for you. So yeah, thanks Julie. <laughs> you, can, sure. you can drop, you can drop the mic. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Julie, for, for your time today. I learned a lot. I hope everyone else on the call did too. Um, and yeah, thanks again for joining us. Um, we'll have the recording up soon on Spotify and YouTube, and uh, I hope to see everybody else at the next Interoperability Roundtable. Thanks so much, Julie. Have a great vacation. Thank you for letting me participate today. Talk for to sure. You soon. Bye. Bye.